Welcome to another edition of Bayou Business Download, a podcast from the Greater Houston Partnership where we dive into the data and analytics influencing the region's economy. I'm your host, AJ Mistretta, and I'm joined once again today by Senior Vice President of Research, Patrick Jankowski. In this episode, we're going to take a look at Houston's real estate six months into the COVID-19 pandemic. How has the novel coronavirus affected various real estate sectors differently? And what does the future look like by segment? Patrick, thank you for joining me today. AJ, thanks for having me on again. It's always, always a pleasure visiting with you. Patrick, can we start off by taking a look at the sector that might be the most impacted by COVID-19, and that's the office market. What are we seeing in office right now? If you look at all the sectors, commercial real estate, office, industrial, retail, multifamily, office is by far the one that's suffering the most. But this isn't necessarily new to the COVID pandemic. The office market has been suffering for the last six years. It all goes back to the boom that we were in in, in 12, 13, and 14. And we thought that we were going to be adding jobs at the rate of 100000 a year. We thought oil prices would always be above $100 a barrel. We thought people would be moving here at, at 100000 a year. And then oil prices fell and drilling activity fell and the oil industry started to contract. And the oil industry really has never recovered from where it was in 2014. I say that because back then we thought that we were going to need a lot more office space. And so the developers, based on what they thought was going to happen, built a lot of office space. You go back to when, when things were, were good for the office market in Houston, that would have been the third quarter of 2014. And the vacancy rate then for the office space is only 12.2%. Mm. And AJ, I, I know this is radio. Uh, it's kind of hard talking without charts and graphs and numbers, but, uh, I ask everybody to please listen out there. I said radio podcast to, to bear with me when I spout some numbers off. Like I said, back in 2014, the uh, vacancy rate was 12.2%. Right now it's at 22.5%. So you can see the vacancy rate is 10 percentage points higher than it was then. But that doesn't tell the whole story. There's a lot of space out there, which companies are actually leasing. They have a contract on it. They're paying the rent but they're not using and they'd like to lease it to someone else. What was referred to as sublease space. Now you had sublease space in there and 26% of all space in the Houston market is available, either vacant or available. That equates to about 60 million square feet of space. When you throw a number out like that, 60 million square feet, it's kind of hard to get your head around it. Right. But if you think of all the office buildings downtown and all the office buildings in the gallery area, that equates to about 62 million square feet of space. Wow. So if you look at it, the entire market, we have the equivalent to the downtown market and the Galleria market, basically either vacant or available right now. There's an inventory of well over 200 million square feet of office space. It depends upon how you measure it. Some say it's 200 million, some say it's 220 million, but it, it's a lot. One of the problems, AJ, is even though we have this glut of space, people are still building more office space. We don't need any more office buildings, but right now we have 3.0 million square feet of space that is currently under construction. We have 3.4 million square feet under construction. And this last quarter, we had negative absorption, meaning space thrown back on the market of 1.7 million square feet of space. So we've, we're building twice as much as we had negative absorption. I know that's a bit confusing, but we're throwing, still throwing space back on the market that people don't want and the developers are still going out and building office space. Do you see an upside for the tenant in this current environment? 
you have to look at this. It may be bad if you're a landlord because you have a lot of people out there who have space which is not being leased. And so it's putting pressure on, on the rents. It's pushing them down, which actually makes it good if you're a tenant. It means that you, when you sign your next contract, you should be able to get a really sweet rate or you can go back to your landlord and say, not only do I want a sweet rate, I want these additional amenities. So it uh, depends upon what side of the fence you're on or what side of the negotiating table you're on. I need to let you know that it, it, it's not universally across the town that we see this huge amount of vacant space. I mean, probably the, the worst spot is the, the north about Greens Point, which is suffering one from when Exxon moved to their campus and the other is the image out there. That's about 43% of all the space in the Greens Point area is vacant. Yet you go just a few miles down the road to Kingwood and only 7% of the space is vacant. But what we're probably gonna see, and we're already starting to see it already, as some of these older office buildings, these low rises, these two and three story buildings are probably to get torn down, especially stuff that was built in the 80s, stuff that's 30 or 40 years old, it's, it's obsolete. And what we'll see is something else come up there. Maybe we'll see some multifamily, maybe we'll see some restaurants, Maybe we'll see some park space. I kind of doubt that because, you know, the owner wants to get some sort of rent from his property. And could that mean that we will see increased density, if you will, in, a, in an environment where older product is being torn down? We're going to see something better on that spot. The fact that it's torn down says it was no longer useful. And so this is, a, I guess, one of the, the good things, if you can say a good thing that comes out of a downturn is you get a lot of stuff that gets shook out. You get a lot of stuff that gets repurposed. You get a lot of stuff which is scraped and, and thrown away that is not needed anymore. And what usually rises up is a, a better use, a newer product, something which is nicer to look at and more utilitarian for the, the landlord and the tenant. Patrick, what are we seeing on the industrial front today? The industrial market was one of the strongest markets leading up to just recently. I guess I need to back up. When I say industrial market, most people are going to be thinking of factories. Industrial market, that's the term that the real estate community uses to describe just general stuff like warehouse and distribution space. It can include manufacturing space, uh, service centers, these things you see where there's an office out front and there's a showroom in the back. That sort of space is kind of lumped in as the industrial space. Mm. That was doing fairly well up until recently. Uh, this time last year, the vacancy rate was 6.3%. Uh, but it's already up to 8.5% the overall vacancy rate. The problem with the industrial market is similar to the problem we're having with the office market. It's just too much space has been built. Right now we have 16 million square feet of industrial space under construction. In a normal year, we might absorb eight to 10 million square feet. So we're building more than we, than we need in a normal year. And as you and I know, this is not a normal year. Right. We actually saw in the last quarter about 1.6 million square feet of industrial space thrown back on the market. That's hmm. a, that term negative absorption that people in the real estate community like to use. And, and so we're probably going to be starting facing a similar problem in industrial that we've had in office. Uh, of the what's under construction right now, that's 16 million square feet, less than half of it is pre-leased. Meaning less than half of it, there's already a client signed up for it. Now, it's not uncommon to, to break ground on a building and not have tenants. You usually pick them up along the way. But when you're starting to see negative absorption in the industrial market, and this is the first quarter of had negative absorption in at least the last 10 years, that tells you it's going to be harder to find clients to take the space which is being built speculatively. And so what you're saying is essentially we're building nearly twice as much product 
as we would normally absorb in a given year right now. And, and that's the reason why we've been seeing the, the vacancy rate go up. If you think about it, the new product is going to be considered your class A product, just by right. definition. It's the newest. It's got the best amenities, everything that, that you needed. This time last year, the vacancy rate in class A space was only about 10%. Today, it's close to 17%. And that's because all this new class A space is coming on the market and not getting leased up. AJ, if, if you want to go back three years, go all the way back to the third quarter of 2017, class A vacancy rate was about five or 6%. That shows you how quickly the market has turned. Kind of put that in perspective, put in perspective that 8.5% vacancy rate, that equates to about 50 million square feet of, of vacant space. And it may seem like a lot, but we have 360 million square feet of industrial space in the region. So although we have the same amount of square footage of vacant industrial space as we have for office space, the industrial market is at least one and a half, if not two times larger than the office market. And it's much more spread out, right? It's much more spread out. You need to understand one of the reasons why we had all this industrial space being built is part of it was the expansion of the chemical industry along the ship channel. Uh, the chemical plants produce the stuff usually in the form of pellets or, or plastics that goes in the containers and containers are, are stored in warehouses in Houston or along the ship channel until the ship comes in and they can be loaded on or off to be exported or imported. There's also a lot, a lot of distribution space built, what we call big box distribution centers, distribution centers. Uh, if anybody has drive, driven out I-10, they see the rooms to go distribution center. So there was a lot of need for that. And there's still some sense that there may be a need for that as we're seeing more and more people shopping online and less going into the stores. And so you're having what's referred to as a fulfillment center. But I'm still concerned. We saw an announcement in the paper just the other day of a 1 million square foot speculative warehouse being built, breaking ground that should open up sometime next year. Like I said, it's not uncommon for something to be built on spec, but in this current market, it's going to have to be a really nice deal to get the people out of their existing space and into this new space. So a lot of retailers and restaurateurs have suffered in the COVID environment, as we've talked about before. What does the health of retail specifically look like right now? Uh, what, are we gonna, what are we seeing now? What are we going to see in the next few months and, and beyond? Okay, I need to answer that question in two ways, AJ. One is retail is picking back up. Retail is actually doing quite well. And that's because what we've seen among consumers is because of the concern about COVID, consumers are willing to spend their more money on things where a year ago, we saw a tendency to spend on experiences. People would be spending their money to travel, they'd spend their money on concert tickets, spend their money to go to the ball game. Now either they can't do that or they're worried that they'll come down with a virus if they do. So they're spending money on things. That's mm. the reason why you see uh, so much money being spent on home repairs and on landscaping. And the reason why, even though car sales were down for a while, car sales are picking back up. People will buy the electronics because they are, for lack of a better term, nesting. They feel safe at home, so they're putting their money into their home as opposed to spending it on, on travel. That's very so, interesting. So people, so people are actually uh, realigning their spending habits based on what they feel comfortable doing right now. And what they feel comfortable doing is spending money on the things that are closest to them, right? Yeah, things which there's less risk sitting at home watching on my big screen TV than there is for me going to the ball game and sitting next to somebody who might be sneezing on my popcorn. Yep, fair point. So overall, let's talk about what, what we're seeing in retail in terms of occupancy right now and, and kind of what, what new product may be coming along. 
Nita said, uh, for the listeners out there, retail is defined a little bit different in the real estate community than you and I define it. When they refer to retail, retail could, cons could consist of anything which occupies a space out there. Consider the typical shopping center that you might see somewhere along Westheimer. It might have a big grocery store as an anchor, but in that center, you might have a dry cleaner, a pizza parlor, a tax preparation service, and a dental, dentist office. Well, the real estate community considers that a retail lease, but if you think about it, the dry cleaner is a personal service, the pizza parlor falls into restaurants, tax services is finance, there's a gym there that actually falls under arts and recreation, the dentist's office is healthcare. So it's many different industries, but they lease retail space. So what we're seeing is the retail sector is actually in much better shape than almost any other sector out there because they haven't overbuilt. Now, we, we learned our lesson back uh, in the 80s about overbuilding. Now, I, I lived out in Sharpstown back then. I remember going to Westwood Mall. Westwood Mall became obsolete. It became the Westwood Technology Center, and now it's the Southwest Corporate Center. It is a business park that had no one has parking problems there because it used to be a mall. Uh, I, I remember there being the Sears on Main Street, which was a Sears on Main Street, and now it's becoming the Ion. Right. It's going to be a center for, for innovation and for startups and for venture capitalists. Now, around the corner from where I live now, there used to be a strip center. Now it's a church. And so the space will find another purpose for it. So I'm not as worried about retail as I am about office or becoming worried about industrial. Now, granted, we had negative absorption last quarter. We had about 700,000 square feet of space thrown back on the market. But in, in a market that has well over 360 million square feet of retail space, that's not a significant amount. What we're going to do is probably see some of this retail space repurposed and some of it will be scraped. Got it. So you're saying that retail is more resilient because it can be adapted to other types of, of uses in, in certain cases, right? And retail is much more flexible than office space is. There's yeah. very little you can do with a, a modern office building. You can do something with the old office buildings. You've seen some of the old office buildings downtown converted into condominiums. But I can't imagine any of those tall glass towers on, on Smith Street downtown being converted into condos. Thanks, Patrick. We'll get right back to the conversation. But first, I want to acknowledge our sponsor. Bayou Business Download is made possible by PNC Bank, which is proud to support the Greater Houston Partnership. PNC believes that giving back to their customers, their employees, and our community is the right thing to do. Visit pnc.com slash about us to learn more. The PNC Financial Services Group, Inc., all rights reserved. Patrick, we've talked over the last few months here and there about the multifamily market. We see a lot of new apartments rising, certainly within the loop, but even beyond that, we see, we see new construction of apartments. Um, typically, multifamily is driven by demand and, and job growth in the region, and yet right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. How long might it be before we could actually see what's being built now actually absorbed in the multifamily market? Now, AJ, as I look at all the apartment complexes that have been announced under construction, and I'm trying to figure out what's driving that construction, all I can think of is wishful thinking. I look at this, and right now, we have 17,000 apartment units under construction. We just finished building close to 23,000. So we're looking at adding over a two-year period, adding close to 40,000 apartment units. In a boom year, if you go back to, back to the, the fracking boom, 
in a really good year, we would absorb maybe 15 or 16,000. Okay. And that's when we were creating jobs at the rate of 100,000 a year. Yeah. We could finish up this year short 100,000 jobs, yet having 40,000 apartment units that we need to somehow absorb. It is going to take a while for us to absorb these units. If we stop building today, we might absorb them in two to three years, but we're not going to stop building today. And in addition to the, the 23, 24,000 we built last year, the 17, 18,000 under construction now, there's another 28,000 on the drawing boards that are proposed. Hmm. Hopefully the developers or their lenders will look at the market and realize that maybe they should hit the pause button on that. I mean, if you look at just over the last 12 months, we've absorbed less than 9,000 units. And, and, and so I don't see the apartment market getting back to above a 90% occupancy rate anytime soon. Now, th that's the magic number. The, the general rule of thumb is that when the occupancy rate is above 90%, the landlord has the leverage. When it's below 90%, the tenant has the leverage. If you look at it right now, class B, C, and D, these are the, the, the lower grade apartments. They're right about 90%. But if you look at class A, all product, both the stuff that's brand new and the older stuff, the occupancy rates around 82%. Got it. So granted, I need to say it's around 82%. Part of it's, it's, it's pulled down a little bit because the stuff that's brand new on the market takes a while to lease up. But the brand new stuff is, is drawing tenants away from the exi existing stuff. So Patrick, could we see a situation like what we talked about with Office where older product becomes more obsolete when faced with newer product that needs to be absorbed. In other words, could we see some of those class B, C, and D apartment complexes essentially go away as there are in increased incentives for that new class A product? It's hard to say. There will be individual situations where a landlord or an owner looks at the property and realizes he might be able to repurpose it for something else. But what you typically see is class A product will start to lower their rents and draw in the class B customer. And then the class B lowers its rents to draw in the class C customer. Right. And it's uh, what happens is they have to accept less rent. I mean, to give you some idea of how rough it is right now in the class A market, 67% of all class A apartments have some sort of concession to lease them on, to get mm. them leased up on. This could be free rent. It could be waiving a deposit. It could be a gift card for signing up. I mean, that 67% that effectively we're looking at lowering rents by nine to 10% as a result of that. And that's just for class A. And that's going to start trickling down to B and C as well. And are you talking about new product alone where the incentives exist or all class A products? This is all class A product. Got it. Because the existing class A has to compete with the new class A. Which makes sense. Yeah. So they're all offering those types of incentives to get folks uh, in the door and the lease signed. Yeah. There, there's simply too many new apartments being built. Now, granted, there are some places where we can use some apartments, some niche areas, but for the, for the market overall, if you're willing to drive an extra mile, you've got the leverage to go in to the landlord and get a good deal on your rent or some sort of incentive. No one, no one should sign a lease without trying to get some extra something from their landlord. You know, we talked about all these different sectors and some are more positive than others in this environment. I think a lot of people are surprised by how well single family 
housing is doing right now. Well, talk to me about that. What, what are you seeing and why is it doing so much better than these other sectors? The single family market right now is the strongest, not only the strongest real estate market, it's probably the strongest part of Houston's economy. And the most recent period for which we have data, the period ending in June, we started 32,000 single family homes. We wow. second in the U.S. in single family home starts. A number of factors come into play there. For, for one thing is interest rates are incredibly low. You can get a 30-year mortgage for less than 3%. Another factor comes into play is that local developers are really good creating a product that local home buyers can afford. They don't have the, the zoning restrictions or some of the other covenants on them, which limit what they can do. If you can build a house, the sweet spot for homes are homes between 200 and 400,000. If you look at over half the homes being built out there are fall within that price range. Another thing which is supported the single family market is if you look at the job losses, most of the job losses have been in the, the lower end of the wage scale or workers with the lower skill sets. And these aren't people who would be buying houses anyway. These are people who typically would be renters. Uh, the white collar worker are the ones at the higher end of the wages, the ones with the higher skill sets. The job losses weren't as significant there. And uh, some of those have already been recouped. So single family is, is actually uh, one of the things which gives me hope. Because if you think about it, single family, you're making a long-term commitment. People will advise you not to buy a home if you think you're going to move within the next two to three years. These are people who realize they're going to be here four or five years or, or 20 years. And so they're willing to, to buy a mortgage. They're willing to set down roots. And so the fact that single family home sales are doing so well in Houston, it's one of those signs I look at that makes me feel good about the long-term prospects for Houston's economy. That's awesome. And I, but I have to ask too, now that we say that low interest rates, all these factors that are contributing to single family, the new starts, et cetera. Uh, it seems like that would also be to the detriment of the multifamily market, right? For those that would see, have, have been perhaps uh, reticent to, to purchase a home, uh, they see this as an opportunity time period. So could that also be somewhat damaging to multifamily over time? Well, it depends. If uh, there are certain calculations out there where it shows, is it more make more sense to rent or more sense to buy? Uh, multifamily, as it continues to lower the uh, effect of rents, will perhaps, I wouldn't say, be a drag on single family housing, but it provides less of incentive to get out of an apartment and into a house. You know, multifamily's got challenges ahead of itself for the next two to three years at least. Single family doesn't face those challenges. If you think about it, the number one reason why you should buy a house is, is it's because it's where you want to live and it's the, the, the shelter you want to live in. You buy it for shelter, you don't buy it for an investment, you don't buy it for tax purpose, you buy it because you want to live in a house. So at some point, people get tired of living in apartments and say, yeah, maybe I'm, my note's a little bit higher or maybe I'm going to drive just a little bit further, but I'm tired of living in an apartment. I want to be in a house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's very telling, as you alluded to earlier, this is really what's helping buoy the Houston economy, single family housing. It's one of the bright spots in, in, in Houston's economy is how strong single family housing is. She talked to the developers out there. They just can't figure out why it's so good, but they're glad that it is. There was some belief that what was going on was we were pulling sales out of the end of the year or there was pent up demand from the first part of the year. I think it's just that in spite of what's going on with COVID, there is some long-term confidence in the economy. 
people who have not lost their job yet feel that maybe they are more secure in their job. Uh, those long-term interest rates and the fact that if people realize they're going to be in this environment for a while, they want a nice place to live and a nice place for a home office. Patrick, uh, thank you for having this conversation with me today. AJ, always a pleasure to talk with you. And that's it for this episode of the Bayou Business Download. Thank you again to PNC Bank for helping make this podcast possible. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can do so by visiting the podcast page at houston.org. You'll also find links to recent data and news updates. We're also updating our coronavirus resources on our website. You can find the link on our homepage or go to houston.org slash coronavirus. Please continue to follow the directives from local officials and health experts. And thanks again for listening to Bayou Business Download.